Hi, this is Pastor Nelson Mercado. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast from the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope you are blessed by today's message. Um, Sabbath evangelism, welcome to the first Sabbath evangelism. In this uh, in case, you know, we, talk, we bring out a topic that we normally would hear on our evangelistic crusades. And, and I find that, that this is um, so much uh, a need for the congregation as it is for those that may not have heard this message before. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the truths that we hold dear, don't you think? And so this is what Sabbath evangelism is about. And of course, it is the new year. So again, happy new year to everybody. But you know, in the new year, we all um, establish goals. And maybe some of you have made goals. You know, Nate, they call them resolutions, right? Resolutions. Uh, You know, things that you want to uh, uh, start doing. Maybe that you haven't been doing or haven't been doing well. You want to do them better. Maybe there are things that, um, that you want to stop doing. Yeah, things like that. You know, ways to improve your life. Uh, they say, though, um, uh, that, and if maybe you've experienced this before, that by week number three in January, most of those goals have gone by the wayside. It's a, sh- it's a, it's a shame, but that is true, right? A lot of the times, you know, I go to the gym um, and in January, the first week or two, or January, the gym is full. But then it starts dying down again. It goes back to normal, right? Yeah, people just are not committed enough. But, you know, I want to challenge you today. If there's a, a goal that you must make, that you should make this year if you haven't, is to make sure that you are a deep student of the Bible. That may be that. That may be your goal, your resolution this year, and that this, uh, uh, not like the other ones that by week three they go by the wayside, but that this is something you're committed to the whole year, Amen. to be a student of the Word of God. If you look at, uh, outside on our sign uh, there at the church outside, it says, um, "May your New Year's goal be to study the Bible and to do what it says." And not just to, to, to study it, but because there's, there's no good if you, if you know what it says and you don't do what it says. To study the Word of God and to do what it says. That, I, I hope that that is your goal this year. But, now, you know, when we think about the Bible, the Bible is, um, is a controversial book for many people. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it, it, we live in a time when, when many people question the Bible. They question its trustworthiness. They say, well, the Bible isn't trustworthy. The Bible isn't relevant for our time anymore. We don't need the Bible anymore. And so today we're going to look at the fact that the Bible is trustworthy. So notice amazing discoveries that prove that the Bible is? Do you believe the Bible is trustworthy? Do you believe that the Bible is relevant for our time? Do you believe that the Bible is powerful? Well, many people, you, maybe you do. Maybe some of you are questioning, well, what evidence is there, is there that the Bible is trustworthy? Now, I, you know, through the ages, there have been skeptics. There have been critics of the Bible. that They question the scientific statements. They question or ridicule its historicity. They, 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 they laugh at its apparent spiritual authority. Now, of course, we uh, uh, Christians believe, I hope that you all believe, that the Bible has spiritual authority. Do you believe that? Yes. I hope you believe that. But of course, when we may be talking to somebody else that, that doesn't believe that, they may laugh at that. They may question the, the, the fact that you believe that the Bible has spiritual authority. But you know, the track of the Bible has been an interesting one through the ages. Never has there been a book 
like the Bible. Now, true, some have denied it. Some have burned it. Some have ridiculed it. But there have been others who have died to preserve it. There have di- people have died for this book. Do you believe that? I wonder, I wonder how do you feel about that. But again, you know, over the, over the ages, uh, through the years, there have been many people who have questioned and criticized this. Some of you might have heard of the skeptic Voltaire. How many of you have heard of Voltaire? Hundreds of years ago, he made a, an interesting statement. He said, I am weary of hearing people repeat that 12 men established a Christian religion. It, you know, he was ma- making fun of this fact. I mean, of course, that's partly true because Jesus is a, is a foundation. But the 12 disciples, you know, the apostles, uh, they became the, the foundation of the church, and the church grew. I've mentioned several times before that uh, historians tell us that within 30 years after Jesus went back to heaven, the gospel had been preached in all the then known world because the disciples, you know, did that. And, of course, by the time of Voltaire, well, Christian, Christianity was everywhere. But he would, he would question that. Come on, that's a, that's a silly story. And notice what he said. I, I will prove that one man may suffice to overthrow it. And, of course, he was referring to himself. You know, I, this is ridiculous, but I tell you what, if it's true, that, that's okay, because I'm going to make sure that the Bible and Christianity is a thing of the past. That's what he said. Yeah, but century has have come and gone, and where is Voltaire's prediction? Is Christianity gone? Is the Bible gone? No, absolutely not. In fact, irony of ironies, we are told that there is a, a warehouse or a, a Bible depository uh, stacked with thousands of Bibles in the very spot that Voltaire made that statement. That's what he gets for speaking against God and his word. Yeah. You know, never in history has there been so many books written. You go to a, a bookstore, uh, 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 Books a Million or uh, Barnes and Nobles, huge establishments filled with books of, of every possible topic. You know, I love books. I love books. It's, so when I go to a Barnes and Nobles, it's like a, a, a kid going to a candy store. I love it. In fact, I am the kind of person that believes that throwing a book away is a sin. That's, that's just me. And so my wife, Lucy, wants me to sin all the time because she wants me to throw away the books. <laughs> you go, so you go into my office in my, in my house, and, and so I have a number of uh, bookcases full with books, and I don't have any more space for them. And unfortunately, I don't have any more space for books, for bookcases, so I don't know what to do. But, you know, it's just I love books. Now, of course, we live in a time with technology. Audiobooks are very popular today. How many of you listen to audiobooks? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I'm, I, I love books, but, you know, it's practical. You know, I, while I'm driving, I'll listen to an audiobook. When I go to the gym, I'm, I'm listening to an audiobook. Um, and then there's e-books. Right? So you can have your phone or your iPad, and you can have dozens of books right there, and, and, and you just carry the iPad. But there's something to me about having the hard copy. You know what I mean? It's called me old-fashioned. Right? So, so I like to bend the pages. I like to highlight. I, I like to make notations. Now, you know, they say you can do the same thing in these e-books, but for me it's not. Call me old-fashioned. I'm sorry. I, I like these hard books, you know, the hard copies. But, you know, and there's all these bestsellers. You hear uh, books that make it to the New York's uh, bestseller list, right? But the fact is, today's bestsellers become tomorrow's throwaways. And yet, year after year, decade after decade, the Bible has remained the world's bestseller. Nobody has ever been able to top the Bible, the Word of God. 
And, of course, you know, presidents and, and, and queens, they, they all, you know, take their oath, right? They put their hands on the Bible. Of course, you hear a lot of that changing these days, but that's always been the case. So, you know, what, does, what, what, what is it about this book that captures the admiration and the loyalty of so many people? What is it about this book? What lies behind its obvious power? Well, you know, the Bible makes a, a, a certain claims about itself. In fact, there's two claims that the Bible makes about itself. Now, the first one is that it was what? It was inspired by God. The Bible is inspired by God. Now, this is kind of a strange claim of authorship because, you know, when a, when a person writes a book, they want to take the credit for it, right? You're the author of a book. You want to take the credit. There is, there is a, usually the back cover of the, of the book has the picture of the author, and it says a little bit about the author. And, and so, you know, you want to take the credit, and you want to get the, the royalties for the book too, right? You, you, you know, it's, I, I, I spent the time. I, I, did the, I spent the energy writing the book. But the Bible writers say that they give the credit to God. It was Paul. I read that there in our, in our scripture reading, 2 Timothy 3.16. He says that some scripture is inspired by God. All of it. All of it is inspired by God. See, I can't say, well, I agree with this part here. Uh, this one's inspired by God, but over here it talks about uh, something I like to do, so this part is not inspired. Can't do that with the Word of God, friends. It's all of it is inspired by God. So that's the first claim. Uh, the Bible is inspired by God. And the second one is, is closely tied to it. It is inspired by the Holy Ghost. So, uh, the, the Bible was written by chosen men that were inspired by the Holy Ghost. Now, we've talked about the concept of the Trinity here in, in this church in months past. We, we know that we Seventh-day Adventists believe in the concept of the Trinity. Remember, there's different variations in the, in the belief of the Trinity, but the, we Seventh-day Adventists believe that the Trinity is the unity of three co-eternal persons, right? That's what, <clears throat> that's what we believe about the Trinity. So the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. So the Holy Spirit is God. So this is how it's tied to the fact that it is inspired by God. But now, God did not just choose anybody to write the Bible. He, he needed to trust someone who he can trust on, somebody that would be dependable. So God knew who he, cho he was to choose to write the Bible. And so these, the, these men were guided by the Holy Spirit. Now, it isn't that these men woke up one day and say, well, you know, I'm going to write something and claim that it is inspired. No, no, no. No. These men, we were told in 2 Peter 1.21, for prophecy never came by the will of men, but what? The holy men, notice again, these are the holy men chosen by God, spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now, these claims are either true or they're not. Right? If, if these claims are true, then there's no greater authority on the earth than this book. No greater authority because they're inspired by God, guided by the Holy Spirit. If these claims are not true, then this book is no, no better than all the other bestsellers out there, and then you can just throw them away. But the Bible has survived all through the years, friends. And, you know, there's been many discoveries that have been made that prove the reliability of Scripture. 
that prove that what the Bible says is true, that prove that the Bible is trustworthy. What are, the ev- what are some of these evidences that they found? Well, you see this image on the screen. What, what are these called? Who knows? What are they called? Okay. M- more specifically, and, and the hieroglyphics. There you go. <clears throat> I think most people won't, you know, I don't know what the cartouche is. Hieroglyphics. <clears throat> hieroglyphics. I have a brainiac as a son, so you know that. You know, uh, uh, until the 19th century, little was known about uh, the history of ancient history except for what the Bible said. You know the Bible is a history book, right? <clears throat> but the Bible has, you know, when you think about the writings of Moses, for example, the Pentateuch, um, there's a lot of that things said there, names that are mentioned, places that are mentioned there, um, that, you know, that, that it's history, but there were no extra biblical sources, that is, sources outside the Bible that could corroborate what Moses said in, in, in the Bible, in, as far in the first five books of the Bible. There was no other sources. And even until the 19th century, there was nothing. And so you see these hieroglyphics there. Egypt, you find these hieroglyphics in Egypt. There was not a person in Egypt, nor really anywhere in the world, that could decipher them. But now in 1798, you may remember Napoleon. Napoleon wanted to conquer the world. And so Napoleon leads a military expedition into Egypt. He takes some 38,000 soldiers and 100 different scholars and artists, all to try to see if there was some way to decipher these, these, uh, these hieroglyphics. And, and, and everywhere he went, monuments and temples, he, he saw these, these hieroglyphics, these messages, and, and he wondered what secrets they contained. But nobody was able to decipher them. A year later, in 1799, uh, one of the most significant uh, ha- um, archaeological discoveries were made. One of the soldiers uh, of Napoleon, he found a, a, a black stone, and it was four feet long, some two and a half feet wide, that unlocked the mysteries of these hieroglyphics. Now, this stone was found in the delta town of Rosetta, and has become known as the Rosetta Stone. How many of you heard of the Rosetta Stone? <laughs> Yeah, so the Rosetta Stone, it was interesting, it, it, it contained an ancient decree in three different scripts. You had the hieroglyphics, you had the cursive Egyptian, and you had the Greek. Now, of course, the, 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 um, the scholars could translate the Greek, but they still could not translate the hieroglyphics. It wasn't until 20 years later a French man by the name of Jean-Francois Champollion, he startled the world when he was able to decipher the hieroglyphics. See, what he figured out was that these three scripts were all the same message, basically. And so understanding the Greek, he could, of course, translate the hieroglyphics. And from there, it all exploded. Now they were able to see uh, and understand the vast treasures of ancient past through these hieroglyphics. And what they discovered was that these inscribed stones cried out to the world that what the Bible says is true. Yeah. And the more the archaeologists dig, the more evidence they find that confirms the Bible history, that confirms the reliability of Scripture. You see, up to the 19th century, scholars believed that the art of writing had not been discovered yet in the time of Moses. So, of course, we believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. He also wrote some Psalms. He wrote uh, the book of Job. 
And again, again, there's a lot of history there, but think about it. If the art of writing had not been developed in the time of Moses, then that really means that Moses didn't write the Pentateuch, and then we can question uh, and doubt all these historical uh, facts that Moses brings about. But now, in, uh, in the 19th century, uh, archaeologists discovered what's called the Ebla tablets and other findings, and they discovered that the art of writing indeed had been in existence during the time of Moses. In fact, some of the things they found actually predate Moses for hundreds of years. So it tells us indeed that the art of writing had been developed by the time of Moses, and we can trust that what Moses said is true. In fact, these Ebla tablets contain stories about the creation. They contain names in, of places, uh, uh, of things familiar to us, right? Abraham, Isaac, Sinai, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. These are extra things that we read about in the first five books of the Bible. These are discoveries that have been made, yeah. Before the discovery of these tablets, there was no historical reference of many of these uh, uh, things that, mentioned, that are mentioned by Moses. And so most people say, well, you know, these are folklore uh, uh, stories. We, don't really, uh, uh, we can't really depend on them. They're not reliable. Yeah. And so what we find here, friends, is that these discoveries at Ebla and, every, and, and other places confirm the authenticity of the Bible. Yeah, David said it best when he said, the entirety of your word is truth. The whole thing is truth. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, this whole thing is true. Why? Because it's all inspired by God. Everything is true. You can take it to the bank. It's true. Now, some people may question, how has the Bible been able to survive all this time? In fact, some people will ask, how do I know that what I read today in Scripture is the same that people read a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago? How do we know it hasn't changed? Because the argument people make is, well, over all these time, you know, people have translated and translated. Uh, uh, the meaning is going to go away. We can't really trust that what the Bible says today is true. Do you believe that? Well, friends, the Bible has lasted all this time. I believe because God has taken care of it. But one of the, the greatest evidences was found in 1947. 1947, a Bedouin boy was looking for a lost goat in the western shores of the Dead Sea, and he idly tossed the stone into one of the holes in the cliffs, and he was startled to hear the sound of broken pottery. Broken pottery. Yeah. And in there, and that moment began one of the most uh, uh, other uh, significant archaeological findings of history. Uh, this, this young man was called, his name was Muhammad Ed-Dib. And he stumbled over the first of what became known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah? And there were other caves that were found and more uh, pottery and more scrolls were found. In fact, portions of every book of the Old Testament with the exception of the book of Esther, were found in these potteries. Yeah. And in fact, one of them was the Isaiah scroll. The Isaiah scroll, some 24 feet in length and in an excellent state of preservation. Yeah. From complete from verse 1 to the last. Yeah. This, 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 this um, uh, uh, scroll was a thousand years older than any of the then known manuscripts that were in existence. Yeah. And, and you know, Critics would say, uh, in fact, you still hear that today, 
um, that Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, was actually more than one book written by more than one author. That it, was, it wasn't all written at the same time, Nate. Uh, people criticize, make those criticisms because, of course, uh, Isaiah makes some predictions, some prophecies, and Amen. critics will, you know, I, how could Isaiah know that? So they try to rationalize and say, well, no, no, uh, the, the book of Isaiah was written by more than one author, was more than one book. But what we find that Dead Sea Scrolls proven, indeed, it was just one scroll Amen. written by one author by the name of Isaiah. Yeah, we can confirm this, friends. Now, scholars also uh, were um, amazed to learn that, um, that the, of course, the Bible has remained unchanged. So because what they did was, now they have these scrolls from the Dead Sea Scrolls. They compared what they said to what the Bible said in 1947. And guess what they found? Practically unchanged. Think about it. If... If God, if this is the method God chose to communicate his will to us, and of course we know God knows all things, doesn't he? Yeah, he, he knows everything. He's omniscient, omnipotent. He knows all things. So if the Bible was going to change after hundreds and hundreds of years of translation, that what we have today wasn't the same thing that we have a thousand, the people had a thousand years ago, wouldn't God know that? And if God knew that, he, that means he would have chose a flawed method to communicate his will to us. And then that if the Bible wasn't trustworthy, it would be his fault. Amen. Right. But God has taken care of his word. Amen. He has protected his word. That's why we can trust that what the Bible says today is the same thing that I said a thousand years ago. It's the same that I said two thousand years ago. Amen. God has taken care of his word. Here's another uh, example of this. Until 19, the 19th century, historians and scholars said that there was a queen by the name of Semiramis, and that Semiramis was actually the builder of Babylon. That's what they said. Of course, when we look at the Bible, what does the Bible say? Here's uh, Daniel 4.30. Daniel quotes Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar says, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. So historians say, oh, it was Queen Semiramis. The Bible says it was Nebuchadnezzar. Who's right? Well, that, that's the issue, right? There was a contradiction there. And, and there, were no, there were no extra biblical sources that could confirm that Nebuchadnezzar was the actual builder of Babylon. But... In 1899, a man by the name of Robert Coldaway, he was excavating the old ruins of Babylon, and there he found tens of thousands of kiln-baked uh, um, bricks, all bearing the stamp of King Nebuchadnezzar, and all taken from the walls and, uh, and the temples of the city. Yeah. In fact, a cuneiform tablet was found there that uh, relates this same question. Notice, is this not Babylon the Great, which I have built? Notice, this is an extra-biblical source that has the same question that we read about in Daniel chapter 4. Indeed, the Bible, or, or these um, findings confer, confirm the reliability of Scripture. The East, the East India tablets, yeah, the house inscription there, this is now in the London Museum, devote six columns to the Babylonian's history, all highlighting the building projects of King Nebuchadnezzar. In fact... How many of you have heard of the seven wonders of the world? You've heard of the seven wonders of the world yet? I can't remember all of them, but I know the pyramids of Giza um, are one of them. 
One of the seven wonders of the world were the hanging gardens of Babylon. Yeah, uh, um, historians say that, um, that King Nebuchadnezzar actually built these hanging gardens as a, as a gift for his wife. Yeah, so it was one of the seven wonders of the world, and, and these, these, this inscription here talks about that. It's amazing what the Bible, uh, what, what these um, inscriptions, what, what these findings confirm. Uh, another uh, mystery of secular history is the name Belshazzar. Now, who was Belshazzar? He was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Was he a king of Babylon? <clears throat> he was a king of Babylon. The problem was that there is no extra biblical sources that could s- confirm that. And so, you know, critics, historians, scholars question that, well, you know, the Bible says Belshazzar, but there's nothing to confirm this. There's nothing to confirm this. You know what, what's interesting? In, in the same book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 12, God gave, uh, as Daniel is finishing what God, what he has seen, what God had told him to write, notice what he tells him in Daniel chapter 12, verse 4. He says, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Has knowledge increased? Yes. Yeah, we think about knowledge in the technical world and, 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 and in medicine and, and so many things, right? Knowledge has increased. But friends, knowledge has also increased of Scripture. And, it's, and these findings that, we have, that archaeologists have been able to, to dig out confirm that, the knowledge and the reliability and the accuracy of the Bible. All are proving that what the Bible says is true. So, notice here on the screen, Cyrus's cylinder. Now here, this is in the London Museum too, and this cylinder confirms that Belshazzar was actually a king of Babylon. See, uh, one thing that they did back then is that um, a, a father would actually rule a rule co-jointly with his son. He was a, so the son was a co-regent with his father. So here, it seems like uh, uh, Belshazzar's father had left him in charge in Babylon as king. So, indeed, Belshazzar was king of Babylon, and we have a source that confirms it, other than the Bible. Yeah? Extra-biblical sources, yeah. Another compelling evidence that we find in Scripture, and this is powerful, is the Bible's ability to predict the future. The Bible's ability to predict the future. Why? Because it's God's Word, right? Does God know the future? He tells us clearly in Isaiah chapter 46, remember the, th- the things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. What does God do? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. Does God know the future? And what does he do? He tells us about it. Yeah, he, 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 he pulls a curtain back, a curtain of time and gives us a glimpse of history to come. Do you know that um, other religions, we're talking about non-Christian religions, most of them have sacred writings too. So we, of course, Christians have the Bible, but uh, um, uh, uh, Islam, for example, has the Quran. You have uh, the uh, Hindus who have the Vedas, the Buddhas who have the the Sutras, Uh, and again, other Christian uh, uh, religions have their own sacred writings, but notice that the the Bible is the only one of those uh, sacred uh, books that has prophecy on it, that has future predictions. 
Why do you think that is? Because only God knows the future. God, the God who created heaven and earth, he is the only true God. The other ones are just books. But only God knows the future, friends. Here's an example. Babylon it became a mighty empire. We know that it historically became a mighty empire. Before Babylon became a mighty empire, God had made a prediction that Babylon would fall. Here's Isaiah 13, 19. In Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God, God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Will turn into dust. In fact, I have a little, a little um, uh, a cup, a small cup with that dust from um, Sodom and Gomorrah in my house. I, I was brought to me by uh, somebody that visited the area. You could still smell like the sulfur, and it's interesting. That's what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, and God said the same thing was going to happen to Babylon. Now, now, when Isaiah writes this, this is, this is 100 years before Babylon actually reached the zenith of power. And God says, no, Babylon's going to be destroyed. And God goes a step further because God predicts the power by whom Babylon would, would fall. Now, and of course, we history students know that Babylon was um, destroyed by who? The Medes and the Persians, right? So notice uh, Jeremiah 51, 11. The Lord has raised up the spirit of the kings of the Medes, for his plan is against Babylon to destroy it. So again, long time before it actually happened, before Babylon rises to power, God says it's going to be destroyed, and it's going to be destroyed by the Medes. Let's go one step further. Because God not only uh, predicted that it would be destroyed by the Medes, he even mentions the one who would lead the Medes against it. Yeah. Cyrus, his name was, 150 years before the birth of Cyrus, God predicts that a man named Cyrus would do it. Amen. Isaiah 45, 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, to open before him the double door so that the gates will not be shut. Cyrus was a man leading the Medo-Persian Empire, and God predicted it 150 years before his. No other book can do that, friends, because no other book is the Word of God. Powerful, friends. And so here we have, again, the Cyrus Cylinder. And in this cylinder, Cyrus talks about, he writes about his conquest of Babylon. And this is where he mentions Belshazzar as the king. Yeah? Right there in this cylinder. And, and, and furthermore, uh, God uh, predicted that Babylon would not rise up a second time. Just like, just like Sodom and Gomorrah, Jeremiah 51, 37, ba Babylon shall become a heap, a heap. It will not rise again. It remains destroyed till this day. Right. In fact, I remember hearing back in the 90s, some of you remember, the leader of Iraq. What was his name? Saddam Hussein, right? Because, you know, Babylon was located where Iraq is today in the Middle East. And there was some, some talk about that Saddam Hussein wanted to rebuild the ruins of Babylon. You know, some of you may have heard that. You know, because that, that's a symbol of power. But we, know, we all know what happened to Saddam Hussein. It was all on national TV what happened to Saddam Hussein. Because God said it wouldn't happen, it is not going to happen. This is why we, we read in Isaiah 40 verse 8, the word of our God stands forever. Stands forever. Plenty of evidence, friends that the Bible is reliable, 
that it is trustworthy, and that it is relevant for our day. But you know, when it's all said and done, the Bible is more than just an authentic history book. The Bible is more than just scientific statements. The Bible is much more than just prophecies being fulfilled. Because if it weren't, then it wouldn't matter what we did with this book. But it's much more than that. Uh, The theme of this book, at the center of this book, is what happened on uh, on that old rugged cross just just outside Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago. And it makes a difference what you know about that. It makes a difference what you believe about that. Because either Jesus was the Son of God, the promised Messiah, or he wasn't. Either Jesus paid for your sin and my sin on that cross, or he didn't. Either Calvary was a fantasy or was it a fact. And it makes a difference what we know about that. What we do with that information. And you know, maybe, maybe the greatest evidence of the power of the Bible is what it claims, the power that it has to change lives. That is the greatest evidence that this book is more than just a book. Because it changes lives. It transforms lives. It empowers lives. It gives victory to people. It changes lives. And that is all wrapped up in one name. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus said it himself. John 5, 39. Search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of who? See, Jesus himself said they are about me. They have eternal life. Yes, they talk about me. Jesus is the center of it all. Now, of course, when Jesus made this statement, he was talking about the Old Testament because the New Testament had not been written yet, right? And so as you turn the pages of the Old Testament, you will discover that they prophesy about the coming Messiah, some 80 different prophecies about Jesus that confirm that Jesus Christ is indeed who the Bible says he is. Yeah. Yeah. There we find that, that, that we, the mission of Jesus, of his love and salvation for the world. Yeah. And notice Jesus says a word to his disciples as they're walking toward him, as this is after his resurrection. These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me, concerning himself. All this was about me. I am the center of it all. And if, and if you want salvation, if you want eternal life, then it's about me. It's about me. Yeah. The Old Testament, of course, prophesied of Christ. The New Testament is a simply a history of his life and his mission and how the church started. Yeah. So this is why the Bible is called the living word of God, because it is through the Bible that God somehow came down to reveal, to reveal to this rebellious world what God was really like. That God is love. That God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son for you. Yeah. And so here is the power in the word of God. It, it has the power to transform a life, to make the drunkard a sober person and, and a good Christian father. It has the power to break the chains of sin in your life. If you let it. The power of God's word today to change the hearts uh, and lives of men is there at at your taking. 
But friends, if you want the Bible to transform you, you need to be willing to be transformed. If you want the Bible to transform you, to give you victory, to, to change you into what God wants you to be, you need to accept the man of the Bible, Jesus Christ. And many of you can probably testify of how your life has improved, how your life has, uh, how have, now you're happy and, and joyful and have peace of mind because of what the Bible has done in your life. And millions of people have been able to testify the same thing. There's many stories of, of the lives of people transformed by the Word of God. Amen. Here's one in particular. His name was Sam Tannehill. You can look this man up on Google. He, uh, it really is a touching example of the power of the Bible to transform a life. Now, Sam, he, uh, he could not remember any time in his childhood that, that, that was carefree and pleasant. In fact, um, by the time he was five years old, his, his parents divorced, and he went from one home to the next. Nobody really cared for him. Nobody really m- took care of his needs. He became involved in crime by the time he was 10 years old. Small offenses here and there, nothing really important, but, but nobody did anything to correct it, to, to guide him in the right direction. Nobody did anything to change his attitudes, and so he became more and more involved in a life of crime. And so finally, he was convicted of forgery and was sentenced to five years in prison. After his five years, he was, um, he was released, and only two weeks later, he at gunpoint robbed a, a restaurant. And so, again, at gunpoint, he did it, and, and he took a, a hostage with him, one of the, the um, waitresses in the uh, restaurant. Now, later, Sam would say that his intention was to simply let her go after she, he was uh, miles away from, from town. The problem was that she recognized him. She knew who he was. And so he couldn't let that happen, so he beat her to death. He beat her to death. And then he, he left for Kansas, and um, he continued doing robberies, and then several weeks later he actually was uh, apprehended, and he was sentenced to death by the electric uh, chair. Now, while he was, while he was in jail, um, several Christians visited with him, and uh, one in particular left him a Bible and, uh, if, if Sam promised to read it. Now, Sam said, yeah, sure, I'll read it, but he didn't right away. He read all the, all, the, all the other books that were there, but when he ran out of books to read, he figured, well, let me read the Bible and just to pass the time. And, and this is what he says about that experience as he read the Bible. He says, I found a place where a man named Jesus sent some of his gang to bring him a mule. For this I thought him to be a horse thief. Then I ran across a place where he made wine. For this, I thought him a bootlegger. Then I found a place where he raised the dead, healed all manner of sickness, and cast out all evil. Now I wondered, what manner of man is this? And so I started at Matthew and read all the part of the New Testament. By that time, I found him not a horse thief, not a bootlegger, but the Son of God. I knew of people who had prayed and served that God and who lived up to to his law, but that wasn't me. I was like ex-con and a murderer, and yet I read in the Bible that there were others there in the Bible that were outside the law, and and that troubled me, he says. I wanted that peace of mind that this God was giving away, but how could I get a word to this God if I really didn't 
didn't want to have anything to do with him. He didn't know who I was. Can God hear really, really hear you pray, he asks. And will he answer a man who has never heard of him? And so I tied praying. And my prayers never got out of the cell, he says. I prayed for help, but, but hung unto the world with both hands. I decided to give this one more try, he says. For three days, there was no more miserable soul on the earth than I. I prayed, I cried, and I prayed. And the longer I went on, the more miserable I became. But on November 4th, I made one more try to reach this God who, who could give me peace of mind. I got on my knees. I truly confessed every wrong that I could think of. I asked God to help me. I told him that, if he ha- that I had forgotten, if I had forgotten any of my sins, that to add them to my account because I knew I was guilty of them. And let me tell you, I had never had such a wonderful feeling in my life. I wanted to shout it to the world, he says. I felt the Holy Spirit come upon me as it never had before and and filled my heart with love and joy. And he says that for the first time in his adult life, he was able to sleep peacefully. The next morning, he says, I got up. I prayed before I even put on my clothes. That day I testified to my fellow men here. He says, I am in cell, uh, um, in a cell in death row, but I am more free here than I ever was in the streets. I have no fear of death whatsoever, he says. To, to me, death is one step closer to my Jesus. And I can truly say that there's no sin too black that the blood of Jesus cannot wash as white as snow. Some of you need to hear that again. There's no sin that is so black that the blood of Jesus cannot wash and make white as snow. From his cell on death row, Sam wrote, there are just four of us here on death row at present, but I'm glad to tell you that three of us are under the blood of Christ. Please pray for the fourth one before it's too late. And his last audible prayer was, Lord, don't hold against these guards what they're about to do to me tonight. What I have done has forced them to do what they're about to do. If it is a sin, charge it to my account and forgive it just as you've forgiven the other sins. In Sam's voice is still today. He did die, of course. But the marvelous change the Word of God made in his life still testifies to many people that that need to hear that the Bible changes lives. Uh, Friends, there is no book like this book that can so dramatically change lives, that it can free you, break the chains of sin in your life. That power can make all the difference in your life right now. As you personally read this book, the more you read it, the more you realize that this is God's love letter to you, that it is God himself who's speaking to you. We were talking about in our class this morning, you know, the importance of prayer. We, We talk to God in our prayer, right? We are doing the talking, but God talks back to us. Through the Word of God. He can change you. He can transform your heart. It makes a difference what we know and what we do with this book. It's more, ju- it's more than just a book to bring to church. It's more than just an app to download on your phone. It's more than just helpful and useful information, practical advice. It, it is those things, but it's much more than that. It is God speaking to our hearts, friends. And God has told us how to use this book, 2 Timothy 3, uh, 2.15. Be diligent to present yourselves approved of God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly 
dividing the word of truth. We need to be intentional, friends, about the word of truth. And so Jesus is, you know, I, I, I told you earlier, I want to challenge you, but I believe Jesus is challenging you today. Because he wants to, for you to experience the joy. He wants you to experience that peace of mind. And he has provided us the power to do that. Amen. But we're not, you know, it, most of us have more than maybe two or three of these in our house. Right. My mom used to put hers in, uh, in that, that coffee table in the living room. And it would collect dust because it was there to, to, to make the, the living room look nice. Sometimes we, we uh, some churches have it here in the front, right? They have a little table. But friends, if, if it's there and you're not reading it, it's not, it's not doing anything. And so the challenge for you for 2022 is to make the Bible the foundation of your life. To eat it and digest it. To know it. Because when it's all said and done, when, 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 uh, the, the times of trouble that are coming ahead of us, if we don't know this book, we're going to be deceived. Jesus, before he started his ministry, Satan appeared to him. And what did Jesus do? It is written. It is, and we, we got to know it because Satan quotes it too. And if he, if he quotes it and you're not, if you're not familiar with it, you're going to believe what Satan wants. But God wants you to understand this book. The challenge for you today is make 2022 the year of the Bible in your life. Would you would like to do that? Yes, amen, amen, because this is where the power lies. These are wonderful words of life, friends. Thanks for joining us. If you're ever in the Nashville area, come and visit us at the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're located at 2800 Blair Boulevard in Nashville, Tennessee. You may also visit us at nfsda.org.